0: Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part four in our series on the Burke and Wills expedition. I want to remind you that you can see a map of our expedition's route on our website, explorerspodcast.com. I also posted a list of all the important people in the story on our site. Or you can take a look at the show notes for that information as well. Another thing, I want to say thanks to everyone who left a review of the show on places such as Apple Podcasts. I very much appreciate it. If you haven't already done so, please take a minute to help out and give us a nice review. Thanks again to everyone who has done so. With that, let us get going. Last time, we left Burke and Wills heading north from Menendee to Cooper's Creek. The date was October 19, 1860. Burke had split up the expedition, leaving one group in Menendee while he headed north. In doing this, he had effectively transformed the expedition into a leaner and more nimble enterprise with one goal, cross the Australian continent. In our last episode, we had detailed all the drama of the expedition, as Burke rid himself of the scientists, the wagons, and anyone who might challenge his leadership or expertise. This had left a trail of unhappy men, many of whom were letting their frustrations stone back in Melbourne. It was an ugly situation, and Burke embraced the opportunity to get away from the civilized world and just do what he felt he was destined to do cross Australia. Now, I do want to say something about a comment that was sent to me by one of our listeners. This person said something to the effect of, I can't believe all the drama going on with these guys. They're trying to cross a continent, and they're bickering about the stupidest things. With that in mind, I cannot stress how much worse it really was. I left out so many details, it makes you want to weep. The pettiness and ineptitude was mind-boggling at times. It was like a bad soap opera. But I should stress that a lot of good stuff was missing as well. Personally, my biggest frustrations are with Robert Burke. He is such a maddening figure. You read stuff about him, and you want to like him. He was generous and giving, and eccentric. One story that was told about him was that he had a bathtub in his backyard, and he was known to wander around outside without any clothing on. He was just a little off-kilter, and I find that refreshing. But when things went badly, Burke could be petty and vindictive, even cruel. In the end, he reminds me of someone who had a lot of things given to him in life. He was handsome, athletic, intelligent, confident, and from a good family. And he sort of coasted on that landing on his feet even when things went poorly, usually because of connections rather than talent. He reeked of a guy who mistook his privileged upbringing and great confidence for actual talent and knowledge. This can work in a very regimented environment, such as a 19th century police force or the army, but in something as unique as an expedition into the outback of Australia, which required flexibility, innovation, adaptability, and at times a bit of humility, it was often a detriment. In the end, Burke couldn't bear to admit he was wrong or admit that someone else knew better, or back down if he was challenged. And more than anything, he hated to do those things in front of others. Showing weakness was worse than admitting you were wrong, even if you were wrong. It means he will make some maddening decisions. Anyhow, that is my Robert Burke rant. Let us move on. The Victorian Exploring Expedition, the VEE, departed Menendee with eight members, plus a local guide, William Wright. There were also two aboriginal guides, one of whom, a man named Dick, spoke some English. There were 19 horses and 16 camels to carry the men and provisions. Free of the wagons and civilization, Burke would find that the march north would go pretty well, just as he suspected now that he had jettisoned all the dead weight. It helped out that the weather was good and the waterholes and creeks had not yet dried up. The expedition would never go more than 20 miles without finding sufficient water, although Wright warned Burke that much of the water was only temporary. Regarding the weather, William Wills recorded temperatures daily, and they ranged from 58 to 80 degrees, fair conditions for the time of year. So, with mild weather, a favorable landscape, and plenty of water, the expedition would make good time, traveling 20 and 30 miles per day, a welcome change from the past few months. On October 24th, the expedition reached Muta Wicha, a stunning mountainous plateau that rises above the dry plains. This is an oasis in a harsh land. There are spectacular rock formations, creeks, and swimming holes. Today, the area is a national park. Even in Burke's day, it was considered sacred by the Aboriginal peoples. Burke and the men would continue to push north; the land growing more and more parched with each step. The V.E.E. would reach Torowoto Swamp on October 29th. This offered plenty of fresh water and game. William Wright, the guide who had come with the expedition, had told Burke that the journey to Torowoto would take ten days, and that is exactly what it had taken. Burke was impressed by the weathered bushman. He knew the lands, knew the people, didn't complain, and he knew how to follow orders. Toruoto was approximately halfway between Menendee and Cooper's Creek. However, it was as far as Wright had ever traveled, and as far as Wright had agreed to go. Burke asked Wright about continuing on to Cooper's Creek, but the man passed on the opportunity. He had family near Menendee, and he had to see about getting them moved to Adelaide now that his job was complete. By the way, something I never mentioned, but Burke went out of his way to avoid hiring married men for the expedition. Even men who had good resumes and who Burke knew and trusted were rejected because of their marital status. Well, if Burke couldn't get Wright to go with him to Cooper's Creek, what about hiring him to organize the transportation of supplies from Menendee to the depot that was going to be established? This way, Wright could go back to Menendee, take care of his family, and then help out the V.E.E. A trusted, hard-working Bushman was exactly what Burke needed. Yes, Wright wasn't a gentleman, but Burke could overlook that under the circumstances. At least he wasn't a scientist. Burke would propose the idea to Wright, and the two would eventually strike a bargain. Wright would be hired as an officer, the third in command of the entire expedition, after Burke and Wills, for 400 pounds. That was more than the 300 pounds that the other officers were getting, and Burke wasn't positive he could get that salary approved, but he promised Wright that he would pay the balance out of his own pocket if the committee wouldn't go above 300 pounds. Deal done. Burke would compose a dispatch to the Exploration Committee, explaining what he was doing. The committee would have to approve Wright's commission, but Burke said that was a formality. Burke stressed to Wright that it was critical to get the expedition and the supplies from Menendee to Cooper's Creek, and he should waste no time in getting it done. Wright promised him that it would happen, saying, quote, You have my word, Mr. Burke, end quote. That was good enough for Robert Burke. He felt confident about Wright. What could possibly go wrong? Well, where do we start? First, Burke never wrote out any explicit orders. This allowed for everyone to interpret Burke's instructions in any way they saw fit. And second, his orders were vague and at times contradictory. Let's examine them. 1. Go back to Menendee. Clear enough. 2. Obtain a supply of meat so it can be brought north. This was to replace the meat that it spoiled. 3. Wait for the camels and horses to return to Menendee and then load them up and return to Cooper's Creek. OK, that seems simple enough. But how is Wright to get more meat if he has no funds? And he certainly couldn't get the supplies from Menendee to Cooper's Creek without more transport, so he would have to wait for the camels and horses to return. Or should he get more horses from the locals and use them to come north? If so, he needed money for that. Where does that come from? And one last huge question. All of this can happen assuming William Wright gets his commission approved by the Royal Society. So what was Wright supposed to do? Wait for his commission to be approved? I mean, should he just start working for the VEE and assume everything would be fine? That could take weeks, maybe months. The job itself, taking a caravan of supplies to Cooper's Creek, will take many months to accomplish. What happens if he comes back and finds the Royal Society has rejected his commission? He'd have risked his life for nothing. So, as you can see, it's all kind of murky, and know that these are all questions that will affect our story to the very end. William Wright would depart for Menendee on October 30th, taking with him the two aboriginal guides. Burke told Wright that he would send back the horses and camels, likely with William Bra. Before Wright departed, Burke decided to place a cache of supplies at Torowoto Swamp. He made sure that Dick, the aboriginal guide, and his companion knew nothing of the cache's location, as the white men did not trust the aboriginal peoples. The cache would mostly consist of food, including flour, pork, biscuits, and tea. By the way, the attitude of the Europeans toward the aboriginal peoples is mostly contemptuous. It is not dissimilar to the views that whites had toward the native peoples of the Americas at the same time. They thought of them as lazy, savage, and not to be trusted. William Wills would write, They are continually killing one another, which is a very good thing. They will soon be extinct. His attitudes were not uncommon amongst most white men of the day. So William Wright and the two aboriginal guides would depart the former carrying a variety of dispatches to go to the Royal Society. In one of those dispatches, Burke would tell the committee that once he reached Cooper's Creek, he may take a smaller party north in a dash for the coast. It is a plan many believe that Burke has harbored the entire time. We will get back to William Wright later in the show, but for now, I want to stay with Robert Burke. Burke and Wills, along with six men, would head north. A local aboriginal man, who knew the way to Cooper's Creek, was hired to guide the VEE for part of the journey. Also, Burke was informed that the waterholes between the Torowoto Swamp and Cooper's Creek were full. Now, I do want to stress that the lands to the south and the north are dry and often lifeless. The ability to get food is limited, and the waterholes, while they exist, were not always easy to find and, as summer approached, shrinking. This will make for a dangerous journey if you are not prepared and you do not know where you are going. Well, thankfully for the VEE, the weather was still mild and they had a local guide for much of the way. And speaking of the Aboriginal peoples, I want to talk a bit about the continent's oldest residents and the missed opportunity they represent. All along the trek north and at Cooper's Creek, the VEE would always be encountering native peoples. Both Aboriginal and European were drawn together because of water. It was critical to everyone's survival. The local Aboriginal people, as we have noted, were a semi-nomadic people. They followed their sources of food and water based upon the time of year. They had adapted to life in what could often be a harsh land. No, they had not made great cities or monuments, but they had survived this way for tens of thousands of years. The local aboriginal people would usually avoid Burke and his men. The size of the VEE, their weapons, and the animals, especially the camels, frightened them. And, at least on the march north, the strange travelers did not stay long. They stopped at a waterhole, spent the night, and moved on. The native people would call Burke and his men Purdy Purdy, meaning red fellows, They did so because Burke and his men were more red than white due to sunburn. It's important to understand that there were many different tribes, as well as subgroups within each tribe. It is not unlike the natives of North America. These tribes had an established system to help avoid conflicts. When a group was passing through a territory of a different tribe, they would stop before entering and wait for the local tribe to send out a representative. They would greet each other and, after a bit of ceremony, be welcomed. The newcomers would be given food and a place to sleep. If the two sides did not understand each other's language, there was a basic form of sign language that they would use for communication. After all of this, they would move on. The local aboriginal people the VEE encountered often tried to communicate with Burke, eventually using hand gestures when it was clear the white men did not understand their language. The whites often mistook these gestures as being hostile, but it was more likely a welcoming message. This same thing would happen at Cooper's Creek, the local natives would come to the camp, oftentimes with gifts of fish and seed cakes. Burke and the men usually just chased them off, even threatening to shoot them, believing them to be nothing more than thieves and savages. Little effort was made to interact with them, a shame because the whites could have learned a lot about surviving in this difficult land. William Wills was dismissive of the aboriginal peoples, saying, quote, they appear to be mean-spirited and contemptible in every respect, end quote. In the end, the VEE would never really make any effort to engage the aboriginal peoples, and the natives saw the whites as rude and aggressive. At Cooper's Creek, the VEE set up a camp and stayed for days on end, which was against aboriginal custom. Visitors should move on after a short stay. This was part of the native people's way of striking a balance with nature. They did not want to overfish or overhunt a particular waterhole or oasis. No matter, it was a lost opportunity. So, Burke and his men would reach the Bolu River on November 1st, and then follow it north into an increasingly desolate land. And then, on November 11th, the area would suddenly transform into a rich, green, vibrant land surrounding a river winding its way through the wilderness, Cooper's Creek. The men were thrilled to reach the midpoint of the continent, more than three and a half months after departing Melbourne. Cooper's Creek was, as we have noted, a respite in the middle of a desolate region. And it is a river, not a simple creek and, in reality, a pretty long river, over 800 miles long, stretching from the Lake Eyre Basin in the west and into eastern Queensland. It flows inland, which is unusual. The river is fed by tropical downpours coming over the Great Dividing Range, and there are many tributaries. But the really fascinating thing about Cooper's Creek is that it changes year after year, depending on the rainfall. You could have a lake at a location one year, and a muddy hole at the same spot the next. It was always shifting and evolving, and it would make it hard to map. No matter, as a reliable water source, it was invaluable to the aboriginal peoples, not to mention the wildlife. By the way, the river today is called Cooper Creek, not Cooper's Creek, as it was in Burke's day. So, Burke and Wills and the men arrived at the beginning of summer. The water was high, the flora and fauna in full bloom, and the wildlife teeming with activity. The area was lush and vibrant. Birds, over 200 species, were everywhere, and there were more than a dozen kinds of fish, including perch. The waters also included frogs, turtles, and snakes. Wildlife flocked to the river, including dingoes, wallabies, and kangaroos. And we can't forget the insects. There were lots and lots of insects. Burke would set up camp along Cooper's Creek and immediately begin to scout out the surrounding area, seeking to find an elusive route to the north coast. The critical element that Burke was looking for was water. He could carry food, but not water, at least not in great quantities. The lack of such a route had forced Charles Sturt to abandon his explorations of the area back in 1845. He had tried to penetrate an area that he would call the Stony Desert, and the name pretty much explains what the place was like. It was a vast desert covered in stones. I recommend doing a search for it online and taking a look at the pictures. It's amazing and terrible looking at the same time, just open ranges of crumbling solidified sandstone. Crossing it would, no doubt, be a miserable experience. These excursions into the surrounding desert always included William Wills or William Bra, as they were the only two men who knew how to use a compass and therefore not get lost. One of these reconnaissance missions almost ended in disaster when, on November 25th, William Wills and Thomas McDonough set out with three camels and provisions for a week. The two would venture as far as 90 miles north, but would find only sand. At one point, Wills and McDonough halted their march and unpacked the camels to give them a rest, letting them roam free. This was a common practice as it allowed them to graze. Well, when the two men weren't watching, the camels took off, likely going in search of water, and they weren't in the mood to come back. Wills and McDonough would give chase, but it was fruitless. The camels were gone. They were forced to abandon most of their equipment and begin to march back toward Cooper's Creek. They only had one leaking water bag to get them from water source to water source. It would end up to be a brutal trek. Wills recorded temperatures as high as 130 degrees in the sun and 112 degrees in the shade. The two men would walk 80 miles in four days, Wills' directional sense saving their lives. But it would be a close call. When they reached the creek, they only had one liter of water remaining. The three camels, by the way, would be found a year later, near Adelaide, about 500 miles to the south. They had gone native and were happy and healthy, much smarter than us humans. The loss of the camels was a major blow but it was far outweighed by the survival of Wills and McDonough. Burke was impressed by Wills. The young man had not panicked, and he had demonstrated intelligence and in good sense. And Wills, after only a day of recovery, was ready to head back out into the wild. This again impressed Burke, who would later write the committee and say, quote, I consider myself very fortunate in having Mr. Wills as my second-in-command. He is a capital officer, zealous and untiring in the performance of his duties. End quote. By the way, Wills was one of the hardest-working men in the VEE. He was always busy and never shirked his duties. In addition to all the work he did during the day, he would stay up late into the night making astronomical observations. All of this would make him a number two officer who complimented his boss, Robert Burke, really well. Wills showed deference to Burke and accepted his boss's limitations, and Wills' skill set, the science stuff, really helped shore up Burke's limitations. Again, it was a good relationship, and the two would develop a genuine affection for one another, with Burke frequently calling Wills, my dear boy. So, as the expedition narrowed down their options for proceeding north, they were forced to move their camp in early December due to a new problem. Rats. Thousands and thousands of rats. Specifically, these were migrating bush rats, which swarmed over the camp, destroying anything they took a fancy to. Leather, bedding, food. The men would even wake up and find the rats chewing on their toenails. And the rats brought another joy snakes. Snakes love to eat rats, so they came out for the all you can eat buffet. This included the death adder, one of the most poisonous snakes in the world. Due to the rats, Burke would move the camp down the creek, picking a spot by a waterhole with two great coolabah trees. I think I'm saying that right coolabah. The tree, in a way, became the center of life for the men living along Cooper's Creek. They camped around the trees, used them for shade, hung their clothing on the branches, that sort of thing. Now, the one thing that the new camp didn't do was save the men from another plague, insects. There were flies and mosquitoes and bugs galore. The men could not go outside of their tents without a veil. Otherwise, they would be swarmed by insects. They'd get in their ears and nose and mouth. It drove the men crazy. So, the men of the VEE at Cooper's Creek were busy reestablishing their camp, and Burke contemplated the future. He desperately wanted to take a small party, strike out to the north, knowing that if he waited, he could be stuck at Cooper's Creek for months. But should he wait and see if the relief party from Menendee arrived? For the journey to the coast, Burke envisioned a contingent of him, wills, and four of the best men, as well as plenty of supplies. But if six of the men went north, that would leave only two at Cooper's Creek. The supplies were too valuable to be left to just two men. Thus, if Burke waited for William Wright, that would be ideal. But when would the Bushmen arrive? Burke imagined that Wright could get to Cooper's Creek by mid-December, but he knew there were factors that could delay him. Also, I want to mention, Burke never sent back the extra camels and horses to Men and D. So how Wright would bring all the supplies to the North is a good question. And with that in mind, let us jump back in our story and see what William Wright and the rest of the men of the VEE were up to. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. William Wright, along with the two aboriginal guides, would return to Menendee on November 5th. The camp had been moved up the Darling River to a spot seven miles north of the small outpost. The location, called Pamamaru Camp, was on a high, dry spot with plenty of shade and grazing land. Since the departure of Burke and the others, the men just sort of hung around the camp. There was plenty of food, and it was only about an hour walk to the pub in Menendee. Ludwig Becker would spend the time sketching, while Herman Beckler, the botanist, took to going on excursions in the surrounding area, anything to be free of the camp and the presence of William Hodgkinson, the journalist. Everyone in camp hated Hodgkinson. He is probably best described as a malicious troll whose main quality seemed to be his ability to ingratiate himself with important people. Anyhow, now that he had reached Menendee, Wright assessed the situation. He had ten camels and seven horses, many of them in poor shape. There were upwards of ten tons of gear and supplies. Wright figured that he needed at least ten more horses if he was going to get the essentials up to Cooper's Creek. Could he buy more horses? Well, no, he couldn't. No one in the area would take the expedition's checks or extend credit to them. Thus, he could only have a letter written out to the committee explaining his situation, asking for instructions, and more money. Now, if the horses and camels returned from Cooper's Creek, that would give Wright a different option. But as we know, that is not happening. But even if it was, Wright knew that they wouldn't get to Menendee for at least three to four more weeks. Let's be honest, there was not a lot that Wright could do at this point. He had no money or credit to buy horses, and his job still had to be approved by the committee back in Melbourne. Thus, the man was, understandably, reluctant to get too involved in the affairs of the expedition before getting a contract in hand. That's just smart business. And it is unfortunate, as Burke had stressed how important it was for the supplies to get to the camp at Cooper's Creek. Wright figured that a response from the committee would take at least five to six weeks to get to Melbourne and then back to Menendee. Thus, he packaged up his own letter to the committee, which he didn't write himself as he was nearly illiterate, as well as those given to him by Burke, and sent them off on the next steamer to the south. Now he just had to wait. He figured he would eventually get money from the society to buy horses, or Burke would send back the horses and camels from Cooper's Creek. And besides, he had family business to attend to, so it wasn't as if he could leave anytime soon waiting a few weeks wasn't a big deal. This lack of urgency was problematic. Yes, Wright was hamstrung by circumstances, but what he could have done was send one of the men on horse back to Melbourne. A letter can only explain so many things, and what he needed was to get someone in the faces of the exploration committee and be an advocate for the expedition. But that did not happen. Now, one thing that did occur at Menendee was the arrival of trooper Miles Lyons on November 11th. Miles Lyons was a policeman from Swan Hill, and he is new to our story. You're probably wondering, a policeman? Hmm, what is all that about? Was he there to arrest Burke? Well, no, it's not that. Instead, he was in Menendee with crucial dispatches for Burke. So what were these important documents? Well, to be honest, they really weren't that crucial. But Trooper Lyons was told they were, so he was taking the situation very seriously. Let's back up again for this part of our story. So, in October, word had reached Melbourne about the return of John McDougal Stewart from his failed attempt to cross the continent. Members of the Royal Society were thrilled, as now Burke had the upper hand in the race between Victoria and South Australia. So, what they did was to write to Burke, essentially telling him what was up, and that it was critical for him to get a jump on Stewart, who was already making noise about setting out for the coast in another attempted crossing. Burke needed to get moving if he was going to win. The Exploration Committee's secretary, John McAdam, would tell Burke, the honor of Victoria is in your hands, end quote. Also, another letter from Georg von Neumeier told Burke that he was having no luck in getting a ship to travel to the north coast, to rendezvous with him at the end of the crossing. All of this stuff was, frankly, unnecessary. Burke knew about Stuart's predicament, and he was all about making a dash for the coast. He didn't need any urging. And the whole ship to the north coast thing doesn't really seem to have been believed by Burke to be much of an option in the first place. No matter, Trooper Lyons had been told that these dispatches were crucial, and they only were for the eyes of Robert Burke. The 36-year-old policeman had then set off, determined to complete his mission. Upon reaching Menedee, Wright told Lyons that he was unlikely to catch Burke unless he went all the way to Cooper's Creek, and he advised the trooper that the trek north was risky as summer was approaching and the waterholes were drying up, but the man insisted on making the attempt. Wright would agree to help, providing the trooper with two men and three horses for the task. The men included Dick, the aboriginal guide, and Alexander McPherson, who was a saddler who had joined the expedition at Swan Hill. Trooper Lyons agreed that, upon delivering his dispatches, he would bring the rest of the horses and camels back from Cooper's Creek. That's assuming they weren't already on their way. So Lyons, McPherson, and Dick would depart from Menindee on November 11th. They took as much food as they could, and after that they figured they could hunt. Plus, Wright had told them of the cache of supplies left at Toruoto Swamp. Dick insisted that he knew where those supplies were buried, even though Burke and Wills had not included him on the location. Now, I'm going to leave the men in D camp for now and continue on with Trooper Lyons and his trek north. While these guys aren't really essential to our story, they are part of the Burke and Wills expedition, or at least associated with it, so we want to tell the story, and it's a pretty good one. So, the men struck out to the north, trying to follow Burke's trail as they went. They rode hard, and the men and weary horses struggled in the heat the waterholes, so plentiful just a month ago, were drying up quickly. On November 15th, the three men would stop at one waterhole and ignore the fact that the horses avoided taking a drink. They would fill their stomachs with water, and sure enough, a bit later they would all be horribly sick, vomiting for hours and hours. Still, they pushed on once they were sufficiently recovered. It was not long before the three men would run low on food, but at the Toruoto Swamp, they expected to use the cache of supplies left by Burke to sustain them, But there was a big problem. Dick thought he knew where the supplies were buried, but it turned out he was wrong. They would search and search, but no luck. There was no food to be had. Despite their dwindling food supplies, Lions elected to push onward. On November 21st, they would reach Lake Bolu. Here they would encounter a group of more than 30 aboriginal peoples who appeared hostile in nature. The three had a shotgun and two revolvers between them, but the 10-to-1 odds were not good. Lyons, who had a reputation as a fearless and dedicated police officer, would challenge the Aboriginal peoples by boldly marching right at them, basically daring them to do something. The natives would let them pass, and Lyons and the others would depart quickly. So, things are getting pretty dicey for Trooper Lyons. There was no water to be found, and food ran out. On November 24th, the horses simply lied down and would not move. Finally, Lyons would climb a high hill to survey the area to the north, and what he saw was disheartening. It was a desert covered in stones as far as he could see. Lyons decided it was time to turn around. What had happened was that Burke had veered west about a 100 miles from Cooper's Creek. Lyons had missed that turn and had continued north into the desert. The men were desperate now. They had had no food or water for three days and would even resort to drinking their own urine. Eventually, they would let one of the horses wander in hopes that it would instinctively find water. The move would pay off when, at the end of the day, they would be led to a water hole. While the men were saved, two of the three horses would die. The three men would stagger south, nearly going mad from starvation and dehydration. They would manage to kill a swan one day, as well as some rats and snakes. It was enough to barely keep them alive. They would finally reach the Toruoto Swamp, but both Lyons and McPherson were nearly dead and could not continue. They decided to give the last horse to Dick and have the guide head back to Menendee for help. So, Dick would take off and the feeble Lyons and McPherson struggled to survive. They got an aboriginal woman to show them how to make the seed cakes, which required seeds from the Nardu plant, a water fern. You grinded up the seeds between two stones, mixing the powder with water, then baked it on hot ashes. It was labor-intensive, but it worked, giving them something to eat. So, Dick would stumble into the camp north of Menendee about a week later, on December 19th, barely alive. His horse had died, and he had traveled nearly 200 miles, eating only two lizards and two birds along the way. Hermann Beckler would volunteer to lead the rescue party. He would head north without delay, taking with him Belloc, one of the sepoys, and Peter, an aboriginal guide. They had three camels and a horse, plus plenty of food. Beckler would push hard, showing that Burke was wrong about him. He was not afraid of venturing into uncharted territory, as Burke had claimed. And Beckler, unlike all the rest of the members of the VEE, demonstrated an appreciation of the lands and the native peoples, something that might have aided Burke. No matter, Beckler would reach Toruoto Swamp on December 27th, making the journey in just eight days. He would find McPherson and Lyons in awful shape, nearly skeletons, suffering from severe malnutrition. Both men were physically and mentally broken. While the two men recovered some of their strength, Beckler would make an excursion to the nearby Gonanberry Range, along with the guide, Peter. I want to share one interesting moment. While going through a dry area, Peter would note to Dr. Beckler a spot on the ground where there were scratch marks. Peter explained that these were from a dingo who clawed at the ground in an effort to get to water. The two men would, in short order, dig into the earth and uncover a waterhole. I mention this because it demonstrates the missed opportunity that Burke and Wills had right before them, the aboriginal peoples. These people had survived, even thrived, in these harsh areas for tens of thousands of years, and the dismissive, arrogant attitude toward them caused the VEE to not use one of the most important resources they had at their disposal. Anyhow, Beckler would return to Lyons and McPherson and begin a march south to Menendee. The exhausted party would reach the expedition's camp on the evening of January 4, 1861. Herman Beckler, who had resigned from the expedition in disgust more than two months earlier, had ventured into the wilds of Australia, saving the lives of two men. Well done, Dr. Beckler. So, we are done with the activities around the camp at Menendee. But I do want to talk a little bit about William Wright backing up to December 19th, when Dick had staggered into camp bringing a message from Trooper Lyons. Well, with the return of Dick, Wright knew that Lyons was not coming back with the horses and camels. Thus, he would have to get horses in some other fashion. For that, Wright needed money and authority from the Exploration Committee. Wright had sent a letter to the committee back in early November, along with Burke's dispatches. And even Beckler and Becker had followed up with letters of their own a couple of weeks later. But no one had replied. Thus, Wright dictated a new letter to the committee, asking for his commission to be approved, and for two hundred and fifty pounds to purchase horses and supplies. And instead of just putting the letter on a boat bound for Melbourne, Wright would send Hodgkinson to personally deliver the message. Wright would tell the committee that he believed Burke had already pushed on from Cooper's Creek a correct assessment and that it would be critical to get the additional provisions to the supply depot. They were needed by the men there to survive, and on Burke's return he would need them as well. Hodgkinson would reach Melbourne on December 30th and immediately go to John McAdam, the Exploration Committee's secretary. McAdam was appalled to find out that Wright had not yet headed north, and he called an emergency meeting of the committee. The committee would respond quickly. They approved Wright's commission, and they sent him a line of credit of 400 pounds. They also approved a commendation for Dick for saving the lives of McPherson and Lyons, and told Wright to give him a small financial reward for his services. And then they had one final message for Wright. Get moving. Hodgkinson would take all these messages and rush back north. So, a quick note here. What had happened? Why had the committee not approved Wright's commission or gotten him more money? Well, the dispatches written by Burke at Torowoto Swamp and the follow-up letter by Wright had reached the committee on December 3rd. But John McAdam would later claim that he had not seen Wright's letter, and the committee had felt no need to confirm Wright's commission as Burke had given him the job. Thus, they didn't feel the need to respond. Well, all of this seems pretty weak, The committee admitted getting Burke's dispatches, so why not Wright's? They had been packaged together, after all. My best guess is that the committee got all the letters, but decided to ignore Wright's. They were worried about the rising costs of the expedition, and maybe they thought that Wright would be getting back the horses and camels from Cooper's Creek, so there was no reason to give him money to buy more. In the end, it was a bunch of people blaming each other for their lack of foresight. The committee clearly didn't understand the severity of the situation in the North, a problem aided by Burke's rosy reports and Wright should never have relied on sending a letter when he needed a quick response. He had men at the camp in Menendee, and he should have sent one back as soon as he had the opportunity. It took the appearance of Hodgkinson to make everyone understand the serious nature of the problems going on in the North. Despite all of this, the confusion was, in and of itself, not fatal. But combine it with other decisions, and, well, we will see. With that, let us go back to Robert Burke and his men at Cooper's Creek. Robert Burke fretted. It was mid December and he wanted to get moving. But summer was approaching. It was risky, even foolish, to venture into the desert during summer. But staying presented its own problems, such as scurvy, and the chance for Burke to get relieved of command. And let us not forget, it might give John McDougall Stewart an opportunity to catch the VEE. And then something happened that urged Burke to get going thunderstorms. He could see them coming from the west, and he took them as an opportunity and an excuse to get going. If the expedition departed soon, the rains would, hopefully, fill up the waterholes to the north. This helped convince Burke to act. Now was the time to go, even if Wright had not reached them. He began to make plans. Burke decided he would go with Wills, whose navigational skills made him irreplaceable, and two others. But who? Well, one man would be John King, a 22-year-old Irishman and former soldier in the British Army. King, who was quiet and reliable, had come from India and knew how to handle the camels he was a must. As for the final man, Burke would have liked to have taken William Brahe, the 25-year-old German. The man was a respected and dedicated worker, and he could use a compass, a skill that would be needed if anything happened to Wills. However, Brahe and his skills were needed at Cooper's Creek. Burke wanted a reliable man who could serve in the capacity of an officer to run and protect the supply depot. Brahe fit that bill. Plus, if things went badly and Burke did not return, Bra, with his ability to use a compass, would be critical to getting the rest of the men back to Men and D. Thus, for the fourth man in the golf party, as it was called, Burke selected Charlie Gray. Gray was a hard working man with bush experience. He was well liked, and his Jack of All Trades moniker would be a welcome skill set in the small company. With that decided, Bra would be left in command of the depot at Cooper's Creek. With him would be William Patton, the blacksmith, Thomas McDonough, and Dost Mohammed, the sepoy. McDonough, by the way, was a physical wreck as he had recently returned with Wills from a scouting trip into the desert, the one where the two men had been forced to walk 80 miles to return to camp. Braugh was disappointed by the decision and protested that he wanted to go to the coast with Burke, but he would ultimately relent. So now that Burke was set on departing, what were his plans? Well, the company's excursions had narrowed down their route. Burke was essentially going to try and go between where Augustus Gregory had gone in 1858 and where Charles Sturt had gone in 1845. They would follow Cooper's Creek downstream to the west for a couple of days and then north across the stony desert and hope to reach Ayers Creek, a waterway that had saved Sturt back during his expedition. It was the only water known beyond Cooper's Creek. So, what did lay ahead for the VEE? The trek north was 700 miles, as the crow flies, but realistically, any journey would be double that and then they had to come back. Burke felt that the expedition could get to the coast and return to Cooper's Creek in 90 days. That's about 30 miles a day, which is quite aggressive. Burke would tell William Braugh to remain at Cooper's Creek for at least three months, but William Wills would, privately, ask him to wait for four months. Braugh would agree to wait the four months, or longer if he could. The main issue would be food. If Braugh was to wait longer than four months, he would need to get more supplies from Menendee to sustain him and the men. So, for the dash to the coast, Burke would take six camels and one horse. There would be more than 700 pounds of food supplies, including flour, dried meat, biscuits, salt pork, oatmeal, sugar, rice, tea, salt, and a smattering of other items, such as butter and a few tins of vegetables. In all, each man would be able to consume two pounds of food each day, as long as they could complete the journey in about 90 days. Other supplies would be kept to a minimum. There would be some weapons, medical supplies, cooking gear, that sort of thing. There were no tents, and Wills would give up most of his scientific endeavors, surrendering his barometer and extra thermometer to William Brahe so the German could keep up the work at Cooper's Creek. Robert Burke and the Gulf Company would depart Cooper's Creek on December 16, 1860, less than a week before the onset of summer. Before departing, all the men would write personal letters to family and friends, just in case, and Burke wrote out dispatches to the exploration committee. Burke's letters explained his decision, saying, quote, I shall endeavor to explore the country to the north of it, Cooper's Creek, in the direction of Carpentaria, and it is my intention to return here within three months at the latest. I did not intend to start so soon, but we have had some fierce thunderstorms lately, with every appearance of heavy falls to the north, and as I have given the other route a fair trial, I do not wish to lose so favorable an opportunity." He also asked the committee to confer the title of officer on William Bra. As for Bra, he was told to expect William Wright any day. Otherwise, he was to build a stockade to protect the supplies. Burke also mentioned to Bra that he could potentially meet a ship on the north coast, but beyond that, nothing much else was said. Burke also gave Bra a parcel of documents, private in nature, which he was told to destroy if Burke did not return. One thing that Burke did not do was order Bra to send any of the horses or camels back to Men The gulf party would depart at 6.40 a.m. on December 16th. The men lined up, and Burke went from man to man and shook all of their hands, talking to each. William Patton, the Irish blacksmith, wept uncontrollably. It was an emotional moment, and the feelings in the camp were gloomy as the men were dividing up yet again. Even as we look back at all the missteps of Burke, this might be hard to understand, but most of his men loved him. Call it charisma or whatever, but he had a quality that made men want to follow him. You have to admire that. William Brough would accompany the party on the first day of their journey, traveling 22 miles west down Cooper's Creek. Burke rode on Billy, the horse. The rest of the men rode camels. After that, Bra would return to the camp at Cooper's Creek and prepare, hoping Burke and Wills and the others would return in the coming months. As for Burke and Wills, they were heading into some of the most arid and desolate lands in the world, just as summer was starting. Before them lay 700 plus miles of mostly uncharted wilderness. It was a task that would likely leave them heroes, or dead, or maybe both. With that, we will leave Burke and Wills for today. Next time, the small contingent of explorers will strike out into the stony desert and beyond as they try to become the first men to cross the Australian continent. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I will see you next time for part five in our series. Take care, and thank you for listening. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez.